0: Morning. Today's scripture reading will be find, found in Exodus um, chapter 17, starting at verse 8. Exodus 17, starting at verse 8. In your Pew Bible, that's page 59. Exodus 17, starting at verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek with his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the sun. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's great uh, for me to be back in this pulpit.
1: Um, I consider it an amazing privilege that the Lord has given me and that you have given me to, uh, to be able to preach and teach in South America. But believe me when I say that there is no place like home. I, I really mean that, and uh, this is this is my church. I I love you all, and uh, it's so good to be back with you. I'm I'm very thankful to the brothers that preached in my absence, and I listened to those sermons so that I knew I know for a fact that you all were blessed by uh, those excellent messages. Well, we're back today in our study of the book of Exodus. This is a, a sermon series that we've called Freed to Worship. And the freed part of that title refers to the amazing rescue that the Lord effected when he brought his chosen people out of Egypt with, uh, with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm. He brought them out of the land of their slavery and out of their oppression And this is, we've been kind of uh, using this as an analogy, and and this is analogous to the salvation that is ours through Jesus Christ our Lord, who rescues us out of a different kind of slavery, but an oppressive one nonetheless. He rescues us out of slavery to sin and to Satan. And then the to worship part of the title, uh, that indicates the purpose of our rescue. We have been saved to serve. We have been purchased to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Um, So we could say with the Apostle Paul, in view of God's mercy, what else can we do but offer our whole selves to God as an act of worship, as a living sacrifice? We, we haven't been rescued just to do our own thing and go our own way. We've been rescued to serve another master, a gracious master. And the, the part of Israel's story that we are currently in right now, I know it's uh, going to take a little bit to remember where we're at. It's been a while since we've been here, but we're currently in kind of the post-Exodus wilderness journey on the way to the promised land. And this is kind of analogous to the Christian life. Okay, that period of time in between our salvation and the second coming or our death, whichever one comes first, that period of time in which the Lord by his Holy Spirit tests and purifies our faith. Um, he's, He's in that process of rooting out our sin and replacing it with the fruits of righteousness. And then, so these chapters that we're now smack dab in the middle of, they give us the perfect opportunity to consider our progressive sanctification, if you want to use a theological term. And even though it's really only been a couple of months since their rescue, it's already been an exceedingly difficult journey for the people. Um, As they're leaving Egypt... the the people were pursued by Pharaoh, the same Pharaoh that had given them permission, in fact, had begged them to leave. Now they're being pursued by Pharaoh and all of his army, horses and chariots, because they'd had a change of mind. And And then it was long treks through the desert where both food and water were seemingly always scarce. And, and you know that all of these circumstances uh, induced the complaints of the people. And uh, despite all of that, we've seen that these complaints were always met with the amazing grace of God, his, his mercy. And, and we could certainly say with them that through many dangers, toils, and snares, they've already come. And as it was with them, so it is with us that grace is going to lead us all the way home. Now this morning we're in the second half of Exodus chapter 17 and we find the people facing another danger and thus it's another opportunity for God's glory to be displayed. Another opportunity for the great mercy of God to kind of take over and show itself to be as wonderful as it is and This is another opportunity for God's people to grow in grace. So let's look at this passage to see first um, a dangerous situation. And then we'll see the the divine solution. And then at the end, uh, we'll be encouraged by a definitive statement. There's a dangerous situation, there's a divine solution. And then there's a definitive statement. So let's look first at this dangerous situation. It must have been, seemed like a pretty regular occurrence that some assistant, some, some person would come up to Moses and say, uh, Chief, we got a bit of a problem. This must have been happening at regular intervals. First, it was bitter water. Then it was no food. And then it was no water, and now here comes the guy again, and his head's hanging low. He's uh, reluctant to have to report on yet another situation. And this particular situation happens still at Rephidim. That's where the last situation happened. They haven't even left yet. And this particular situation is very dangerous. I suppose uh, lack of water and lack of food are too. But this one is, is dangerous in a very immediate and pressing way. And here's the situation. Verse 1. Amalek has come to fight with Israel at Rephidim. So we've got some questions about that, I'm sure. First is, who is Amalek? Well, this refers to a king, I think, of the people called the Amalekites. Okay, I don't know if this was his actual name or if this was just kind of his title being uh, in this family among this people and the leader of them. These were, it appears to be a nomadic um, group and they were the descendants of the very first man that was named Amalek, who was a grandson of Esau. And in many ways, uh, if you can think back that far, uh, when we studied Genesis, you'll recall that Jacob and Esau, uh, twins, and yet they're representative heads of two groups of humanity, if you will. So Jacob, of course, is is the patriarch of the people of God called Israel. And Esau, on the other hand, he's going to be the progenitor of a a bunch of different people groups who are going to turn out to be the perennial enemies of God's people. And so you have these sort of generational animosities that build up between the the, um, offspring of Jacob and the offspring of Esau. And so here we have down the line in Esau's family, this group of people called the Amalekites. And next we wonder why, okay? Why are the Amalekites attacking Israel at this particular time and in this particular place? And unfortunately, the text doesn't tell us, okay? Perhaps, so we we can just maybe speculate, maybe it was, there's now this new water source at Rephidim, okay? The Lord the Lord uh, miraculously opened up a brand new water source. It was gushing after Moses with his rod uh, struck that rock and water came flowing out. So here is now a brand new water source in a very scarce region. And here's a nomadic people that move from water source to water source. And people, I don't know if you know this, get pretty territorial about their water. Okay, and so maybe Amalek is trying to reclaim Rephidim. He believes it to be his, and especially now that it's got all of this abundance of water. So maybe it's because of the water, or maybe it's just those old hostilities. Maybe it was just, you know, ancient Jacob versus Esau, that ancient rivalry. Maybe it was just played out by this new generation. And we know, obviously, don't we, that that war is seldom initiated for good reasons. So whether this attack was motivated by greed or by hate, I suppose it doesn't make much difference. They're attacking, and this is a dangerous, dangerous situation. And I suppose we could also ask how, how did they attack? Again, this is not something that Moses mentions here in this particular passage, but he does later. He does later on as he reflects on this event. And so we look at Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 and 18. And there, he's asking the people to recall uh, what happened at this time. And so we can listen in. And Moses says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you and did not fear God. Well, there's an expression that says all's fair in love and war, but that's not true, is it? That's not true at all. In in fact, in both cases, there are rules of engagement. In in both cases, there's a a gentlemanly sort of way to conduct yourself, and there's a devilish way to conduct yourself. And as we've seen even this week, war is never pretty, but it is particularly egregious when one side targets the weak and, and the vulnerable, you know, to see to see women abused, to see babies beheaded, to see the elderly just mowed down in the streets, that, that awakens in us the most righteous kind of indignation. And if it doesn't, then there's something seriously wrong with you. It's only the most godless, it's only the most heartless that would attack from the rear to kind of pick off Those people that should be the objects of of our pity. But, But this was Amalek's playbook. And such is our enemy's playbook. I hope you realize here we're not just talking about Amalek and the Israelites from thousands of years ago. I, I hope you realize that we also are involved in that cosmic contest between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And perhaps you're feeling like Moses in the wilderness right now. Maybe you're feeling, I expect you're probably feeling like every day seems like a new situation. Maybe, maybe it's not no water, but, but perhaps it's not nearly enough money you're dealing with situations, I know, of every kind, be they um, financial or physical or relational or occupational. You name it. You're dealing with it. These, these are situations. But I propose to you, and I think you, I think you would agree with me, that the most dangerous situation that we could possibly be facing and that we are facing is spiritual We wrestle not against flesh and blood, the Bible tells us very clearly, but against the rulers, against the principalities, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the commander of those terrorist organizations, he plays dirty. He's, the devil, you know, prowls around. Like a, like a roaring lion. And he's stalking the, the weakest wildebeest in the pack, the one who's lame, the one that lags behind. And even right now, he's seeking someone to destroy. He'd like nothing better than for you to make total shipwreck of your faith and destroy your life. And, and we don't want to be unaware of his schemes. Understand that from the the time that first Satan first slithered onto the scene, understand that he's been playing dirty. He's been targeting women. He's been slaughtering children. And this is a dangerous situation. And we need to be ready to fight. We want to know how to fight. And so we'll come to that in just a second. But first, I want to just remind you of something that you might find encouraging, um, like I did, to to just remember this. This is the the first time in the book of Exodus that the people are at war. Now, Israel's going to be in a lot of battles throughout their history, but this is one of the rare times that we see this in Exodus, and this is certainly the first. I'm not really counting the events at the Red Sea, you know, where um, the Egyptian army was chasing them because there there wasn't any contact there, okay? You can't even really call that a battle because it was over before it even started. You'll recall that the Lord had an amazing defeat there. He swallowed uh, the, the horse and the chariot and the riders by... Uh, making the water come back over top of them. You can't even really count that as a skirmish. So this is the first, this is the first, but I want you to remember that there, this wasn't the first potential for war. Do you remember, this, and this is right after the, the Exodus, I want you to remember that there was a chance on the route that they could have taken that the people would have been face-to-face and put right in conflict with the Philistines. Uh, That certainly would have happened if they had gone the most direct and the shortest route. But also, I want you to remember that the Lord purposely took them the long way around because, because they weren't ready for that kind of conflict. This was grace on, on the Lord's part. Uh, Exodus chapter 13, 17, if you need the refresher, teaches us that God led his people in, in this very gentle and compassionate and sovereign way. And so I want, I want you to just think about that and transfer the thought into the present passage where Israel is now seeing war And I want you to understand that that must be that this is not outside of the sovereign, loving leadership of the Lord. In the same way, brothers and sisters, in in whatever dangerous situation that you currently face, you can be sure that God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also Provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. We we have a loving and a gracious and a sovereign Father who leads us and guides us every step of the way. Understand that when these difficult situations come into your lives. Now let's take a closer look at that way of escape. So let's see in the second place the divine solution. When we compare this situation with some of the previous ones, and you, you don't even really need to look further than the first half of chapter 17, there's some differences that you'll notice. First of all, you don't hear the people complaining, which is, that, that's kind of a rare thing, that they're not complaining. This has been their knee-jerk response whenever there was any kind of situation in the past, when things had gone badly, They were ready to to whine and complain and talk about how it would be way better for them in Egypt. And then something else that you don't see is a desperate and discouraged Moses who's crying out to the Lord, who's praying for the solution, like he did even in verse 4 in the previous situation. And that's because this time he knows the solution. And you can almost see his spiritual growth even just in the, over the course of a few verses between, you see the progress between the first and second half of chapter 17. Um, in verse 5, the, the solution to the water problem had everything to do with the staff that he held in his hand, Right? And this was the same staff that that he had thrown down and it became a serpent. And then when he picked it up again, it reverted back into the rod. This was the same staff that, that Moses held in his hand when he struck the Nile River and it turned to blood. And this is the same staff that he stretched out over the Red Sea so that it parted and the people crossed on dry land. And then when he withdrew, the waters came and covered over horse and rider. It's the staff. The staff is the solution. And and the staff is the solution because it represents the sovereign power of God. And when you've got that in your hand, you don't need to fret. And there's absolutely no room for complaining. There's no need for lengthy deliberations. And I want to ask, friend, have have you learned this lesson yet? That... There is nothing to fear. No matter what your circumstances, there's nothing to fear. And the anxiety and the complaining that your uh, dire situation might produce in you, all of that is out. It's out the door because you have at your right hand the power of God. You have an omnipotent, sovereign God. And he's given us everything that we need by his divine power for life and for godliness. Friends, let's learn the lesson. You don't need to stress when you've got the staff. I, I don't mean for that to sound trite. If that came across trite, forgive me. I, I mean it in the most profound way. There's no room for fear, or for anxiety when a sovereign, omnipotent God is on the throne. So Moses declares in verse 9, tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. He, he understood that the only solution to this dangerous situation was going to be a divine solution. That this enemy would only be defeated if the power of God was deployed. And this would happen tomorrow. Tomorrow. I love that. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we've kind of come across that idea a few times already in Exodus. Many of the plagues, you'll recall, were enacted on the morrow after they were announced. And there's some delicious kind of drama to that. Okay, for example, when you hear 24 hours to flee northern Gaza, you just know that something is big is about to go down. And not only that, but tomorrow gives the enemy time to reconsider, maybe even to repent. And even more to the point that that this, when you set a time for something to happen, then it removes all doubt that that thing is going to happen by chance, right? So Moses is actually setting the stage so this would be perceived clearly by all that this is not a chance happening. This is, this is in a sense, kind of like a clear scientific experiment. This is, a, this is a stage on which the power of God can be fully on display. It's going to happen tomorrow. And make no mistake, this is going to be a divine solution. But I want you to notice that this does not preclude, preclude human activity. Notice that. Because I, I don't want to give the impression here, and so I'll just, I, I'm, I'm bringing this point out right away. I don't want you to slip into the faulty, even heretical thinking that, that we are just kind of robots on, on God's grand stage. No, this, the fact, when I, when I call this a divine solution, That does not preclude human activity. So Moses tells Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Joshua, who's this Joshua guy? We meet him here for the first time in this passage, and apparently he needs no introduction. Okay, his reputation has preceded him. In this case, that was certainly the case for Moses's first readers. And I think it's safe to say that it's the case for us. We know who Joshua is. We know that he is Moses's right hand man. We know that he will be the eventual leader that replaces Moses. But as it is at this time, he's about 45 years old, which, you know, is like really young. but already he's given tremendous responsibility. Look, he's the, he's the commander of, of the military. And in this and in everything, Joshua is going to prove himself to be obedient and faithful. You can see the words right there in the text. He, he went and did right away exactly what it was that Moses asked him. He's going to be Moses' successor, and he's proving himself already to be very faithful. But now he and the army that he's chosen must fight. So yeah, there's a staff, but that doesn't preclude the use of a sword. And in the same spirit, uh, Oliver Cromwell famously told his troops, trust in God, but keep your powder dry. Okay, there's there's a really... Uh, healthy and helpful balance to, to strike here when we consider God's sovereignty and human agency. When we consider that God is actually pleased to use human instrumentality to accomplish his purposes in such a way as brings him all of the glory. But this, So we pray and we fight we're, we engage in the battle. We don't just kind of kick back and wait for it to be over. No, uh, there's engagement to be had. And the idea is, though, there is to be no question where the power lies. And just in case there, there is doubt about that, the Lord designs things in such a way as clearly demonstrates where the victory comes from. And I think we can see this in Moses' weakness. Thankful to, to Caleb for uh, leading us so well today. He's already begun to preach this sermon for us when we consider Moses' weakness. The next day, he, he goes to the top of the hill. He's got his staff in hand, and he stretches it out uh, above the battlefield and, and up, towards heaven okay so that that's the that's the posture there he's he's got his hands outstretched with the staff in his hand and he's standing above the battlefield and his hands are up stretched out towards heaven um above the battlefield this is acting like a this this rod is acting like a banner this is uh many armies you'll understand will have a some sort of a flag or a pole or some sort of banner that the troops can rally around. They rally underneath it and according to it. So that's what's happening here. But it's also that Moses is stretching out his hand towards heaven, as we'll read towards the end of the passage here in verses 15 and 16. His hand is to the throne of the Lord because that's where he understands the power to be. He's making his appeal to heaven. He's almost touching the throne of God, as it were. This is his appeal, and this is his testimony to all watching eyes, his confidence in the divine solution. But of course, when, when you have your hand outstretched like that, uh, it's, it's stretched out to the max, you grow tired pretty quickly. I had to put my hand down there just um, for a second. Because I'm, I'm a wimp, you know, I'm a, I'm a weakling. And I learned that lesson, I learned that fact about myself very early on in school. You know, I would raise my hand to try to get my teacher's attention. Not because I had the answer, but probably because I had to go to the bathroom or something. And, and you know, I, I'd raise my hand, but that wasn't working. It almost never worked like that. And so I would stretch it out as far as my arm would go. And maybe I'd even wave it around. And then when that didn't work, I would add sound effects like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and it could be quite some time before my teacher would acknowledge me. And this, this, is, not, this is not easy to do. My arm's getting tired. And it did. So, so then I had to use my other arm as a sort of like makeshift tripod. You know, just to kind of hold it up. And that helped for a little bit. But, and thankfully, in that situation, we're only talking 30 seconds or so before the teacher says, yes, Dave, what would you like this time? Moses is on the hill all day, from sunrise to sunset. And his spirit is willing, but his flesh, it's weak so inevitably he would he'd lower his arm to to get some relief but it was very clear from his vantage point atop that hill that when his arm went down that's when the Amalekites seemed to be prevailing in the battle but then when the staff was up when he kind of rallied himself that's when Joshua and his men kind of regained their ground and I don't I don't want you to misunderstand this, okay? What, what's happening there? That's not like magic. The, the, the lesson to be learned here is not that we need to persist in prayer because when Moses or when we stop praying, you know, the devil wins. That, that's not the point. The Lord's power, thank goodness, is not dispensed in that sort of automated way. The Lord's power doesn't depend on user inputs. Rather, the the Lord's designed all of this to show us in a very visible, memorable way that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Moses' arm goes numb, so he switches hands, but it only buys him a little bit of time. He's, He's very weak, and my point is, That's okay. That's okay. There's no condemnation here. That's not not seen in any kind of negative light. This is not some deficiency on Moses' part. It's not a failure of his faith. It's it's not down to his unwillingness to persist in prayer. No, this is not, not being able to stretch out your hand all day that's got a staff in it. Okay, it's not some gross personal failure. That's a very human limitation. It's it's just your standard run-of-the-mill weakness of the flesh. But that's okay. That's okay, and actually that's by design, because our weakness is always the best stage for the strength of God to be showcased. His power is made perfect in our weakness. But our weakness is also the perfect opportunity for the Lord to impart strength to us by way of his people. And Moses has anticipated his own ability. So he's brought along Aaron and he's brought along this gentleman named Hur. We meet this guy for the, again, this is another case where we meet a person for the first time here that. There's no introduction of him, and the lack of details about this particular character has has uh, led to a lot of consternation on the part of biblical scholars, and and so you have a tradition, Jewish tradition that seeks to fill in all of the blanks so that we wouldn't have this awkward silence. For example, Jewish historians um, say that this her was Miriam's husband, so Moses' brother-in-law. <laughs> and we can't be sure and the bible doesn't say and it's obvious to me that moses doesn't think it's important for us to know those sorts of details what is important for us to know what we should give our attention to is that aaron and this her supported moses in his weakness for one they set up some rocks behind them so that moses could kind of sit slash stand as he holds up his arms, you know when you uh, when you want to have a weight in your hand, lift weights. You know it, it really helps to they say stabilize your core. I don't know, I don't know anything about that, but they say you know you got to stabilize your core. So and also it's easier to deal with pain in your arm if you don't also have pain in your hips and your back and your legs. So it's just um, some a basic help here that these brothers came and, and rolled stones so that Moses could kind of sit on it and be relieved from the burning. But Aaron and her also help by kind of reproducing that elementary school trick, right? They, they hold up Moses' arms for him. So I want you just in your mind's eye to look to that hill and imagine the scene. There's Moses holding forth the staff, and he's flanked by two brothers who are holding up his arms for him. They're shouldering that weight. They're bearing that burden. And, And you can't help, but if you're picturing that, you can't help but also remember something that's very striking by contrast, which is that hillside scene in which our Savior was crucified on where with, with outstretched arms, he, he endured the full weight of the wrath of God that was coming against my sin, is my sin, but there was none to help him. And so we sing, he took my sins and my sorrows, he made them his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Such is the the glorious work of my Savior, my substitute. But through his death and resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed a people. He, He has a people, and he's brought us all together in the context of the local church. And he calls us his body. And he gives us to each other for the express purpose of bearing each other's burdens. And he says, when you do that, when you do that, you fulfill my law. So brothers and sisters, my my counsel to us is let's fulfill the law of Christ. There are people in our congregation who are hurting and who are tired and who are sore, sore. They've been fighting the battle. They've been in the thick of it. But their hands are now shaking and their their knees are, are knocking. They're weak. And this is not due to some lack of faith on their part. It's not an unwillingness to persist in the battle or in prayer. On the contrary, these people are are trusting the Lord. These dear brothers and sisters are relying fully on his power. But isn't it true that it gets hard after 15 months, after five years, after a week? gets hard because we're, we're just weak what an incredible privilege what an incredible responsibility that's been given to us to come along brothers and sisters in Christ and hold up their arms if the, if the Lord is well we see that the Lord is, is very pleased to through these very human sorts of instrumentalities, so Joshua and his men fighting, Moses appealing by holding up his staff, Aaron and her supporting, all of these very human instruments, the Lord is pleased to use those to gain the victory. And as I've been saying, God does that, he designs that, and he accomplishes it in such a way as to make very clear that the victory is is totally his. And thus the glory is totally his. And so we read of this wonderful result in verse 13 that Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Literally, this is by the mouth of the sword, which is actually kind of a a gruesome description. And then you pair that with the relatively rare word that's translated overwhelmed. And put all of that together and we're to understand that the Lord completely routed this enemy. This was a devastating blow to the Amalekites. Such was the divine solution. Now let's see very uh, briefly in closing the definitive statement. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. So there, there's something that the Lord wants to extract from this victory. And he wants to be sure that this people, and especially these leaders, are going to remember for a long time to come. And just a side note here, it's It's interesting, at least to me, that there's two means of communicating this. This needs to be written in a book. This needs to be recorded on paper, and it also needs to be recited. It needs to be so that you can read it and you can hear it. And here's, here's the definitive statement that these people and that we need to hear and it's this, that God will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Utterly blot out his memory. Remember, we're, to, we're called to remember this, that the memory of Amalek is going to be blotted out. And that, that did come to be. I'll just have to fast forward and, and tell you the shortened story. And that is that there are no Amalekites anymore. God has accomplished this promise that he has spoken. This definitive statement actually is accomplished. And it takes some time. And the Lord has things to teach his people in the, in the process. You know, uh, Saul took a shot at this. David uh, did some cleanup. Finally, the Amalekites were completely obliterated in the, in the time in the ministry of Esther And God's word proves true. We understand that this is not ultimately about Amalek or the Amalekites or one particular people group. But this is God's definite statement that he is making against all of his enemies. All of his enemies from from the time of the beginning. When the serpent came and deceived the woman and the man. And the human race plunged into Uh, The curse and under sin the Lord even there spoke this sure same definitive statement that there would come a seed of the woman that would finally crush the head of the seed of the serpent and the victory would be all his all enemies would one day be underfoot again this is not immediate this isn't going to happen immediately but it will definitely happen here's here's another there's so much good stuff here I, I hate to just uh lightly breeze over it but I want you to to see how Moses takes great comfort from this and and wants to render great thanks and glory to God for this present victory and for the future victory that he believes in. And so we read in verse 15 that Moses built an altar and called the name of it the Lord is my banner. There's a there's a name for the Lord of among his many names that describe his beautiful character, he is also called Jehovah Nisi, which means the Lord my banner. He the Lord and His power and his might and his strength. That is the banner that this army is going to rally around from now until the end. We we rally against the name and the character of God who who makes these kinds of promises and then fulfills them. And friends, you you can claim that name today, not for yourself, but claim this as the name of your God, Jehovah Nisi. He is the strength and the power that you can rally around in the midst of your very difficult circumstances. As you fight this this battle against the principalities, against the spiritual authorities, you rally around the banner of the Lord who has shown to us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that the victory is most certainly his. The Lord says, I oh uh, well, Moses does is saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. So, so there again is is that same idea that his outstretched arm is not just a banner for that army to rally against, but it's a it's an appeal to the throne of God for His help. And friends, that should be our strategy as well as we wage war, as we endure these difficulties. A hand towards the throne appealing to the strength and the power of our great God. And we do so in the name of Jesus Christ, who in his person and through his work has, has, gone, has gone all the way into the inner throne room. He, he's touched the throne even, gone past the curtain. And so we also can have great confidence in Christ that we have one who has a hand upon the throne of God. The Lord says, or Moses says in faith, repeating this promise that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And again, this this might seem to you that this is a contradiction, but it's not. It, this is compatible with what God promises that his, the name of Amalek is going to be utterly blotted out. And yes, there's going to be skirmishes, but ultimately. That, that enemy will be underfoot forever. And I say the same thing to you, brothers and sisters, in closing, we have some skirmishes with Satan and with his minions. We endure much hardship, much tribulation. We are at war. It's, it's necessary that we would take up the full armor of God and that we would do battle vigilant looking to the Lord and relying on his power. But take great comfort that we are fighting a defeated foe. Satan Satan is crushed. He, he's received a fatal blow by Christ on the cross and by his resurrection. The, the victory is sure. And so I, I let me just close with, you know me, I love uh, music, I love lyrics that help me think about these things. I've got a, a modern lyric to share with you and uh, an older one. The more modern one comes from a, a singer-songwriter called Andrew Peterson, who's a blessing to uh, many of us uh, through his poetry, A song. He asks us to consider this thought experiment If a thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not the father see this? Would not his anger burn? Would he not repay the tyrant in the day of his return? Await, await the day of his return. He's coming soon. And all will be made right and all enemies, his and ours, will be underfoot forever. And then I can't help but think but of the, of the wonderful words of Martin Luther in that great hymn of the faith. He says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. One definitive statement will be his end. And all to the praise and the glory of our all-powerful God. Amen? Amen.